0: I think teams need to be transparent with the boards today. I think boards are getting a lot more savvy than they used to be, especially in the cyberspace. And you're not doing yourself any justice by giving them a green report all the time. Because uh, really, you can't be green all the time. And then what's going to happen is the first time you have a breach or the first time you have a, a major incident, they're going to look back and say, you told me everything was green. And now you've kind of lost a little bit of your own reputation within the firm.
1: From Exabeam, this is the new CISO, a show about the people who lead IT security teams, the challenges they face, and how they overcome them. If you like what you hear, please rate, review, and subscribe to hear our new episodes first. I'm Steve Moore, and today I speak with Frank Vesci, CISO at Allview Systems. Frank began his life in a Brooklyn orphanage. Now he's a cybersecurity leader, government advisor, youth mentor, and community advocate. He joins us to share his tips for navigating both the human and technical sides of cybersecurity. One thing can determine your reputation with coworkers, managers, and board members. That's communication. So how can a single word change your message? Should you always report green to the board? And what are the four types of complaints that can affect your organization? Frank, thank you so much for making time for us today. If you would, for the uninitiated, please introduce yourself.
0: Hi, Steve. Good morning, and I appreciate you having me on on your podcast. My name is Frank Vesci. I'm currently the CISO at AllView Systems, which is a Vista equity partner portfolio company. We're a fintech company that provides alternative investment software for the entire fund life cycle. Now, how long have you been doing that? So I've been doing this a little bit over a year. Prior to all of you, though, I spent a combined 20 years at Goldman Sachs in, about, in several global leadership positions. I mostly worked under Phil Venables and gained a wealth of knowledge working for Phil. He's at Google at the moment. But not only Phil, I, I gained a ton of knowledge working with many of my former colleagues and teammates. It was uh, truly a great experience working with Goldman. Now, we'll get a lot
1: more into that, but I wanted to get into first, how did you get your start into technology in general, you said you kind of called back to a film that some of our listeners may know and others may not with Matthew Broderick.
0: That's correct. Great memory. Yeah. So I get asked that a lot. Like what got me into, well, back then it wasn't really cyber, but I guess that that's what planted the seed. So there was a movie called War Games. It was in the early 80s. I mean, I still watch that today. You know, It's such a great film. That's what kind of got me sort of intrigued into the whole bad actor type of thing and, and understanding, you know, how to compromise systems. But then fast forward a little bit, I was at Pace University. I was in a Unix and C coding class and and my professor turned us on to a book called The Cuckoo's Egg. So once I completed that book, it was a combination of, you know, recalling war games, which I always watch every time it's on, and that book. And that's really what's got me into sort of the whole technology and, and what's known today as, you know, cybersecurity.
1: For those that aren't familiar it's still, if you if you are a, well, a mentor or uh, certainly a mentor, maybe even an up-and-comer in security and looking for something to look back to to kind of help better paint the future, that's a great book, The Cuckoo's Egg. I think it's something that I don't know how many people are reading it today. I had to read it a long time ago. Cliff Stahl, Great, Great Curious Mind, and it's kind of lays a blueprint for not only troubleshooting, but I would say maybe more than that, uh, tenacity. I'm just throwing that out as a recommendation. I think that's a another. You, know, you mentioned war games. That's another great one. I don't remember what year that goes back to. That had to have been
0: his early eighties. You know, I mean, it, it's amazing because I'm only you know what twenty nine. But you know, <laughs> right, right.
1: Yeah, I feel twenty nine every day. So that sort of plants the the seed. What was your first time security gig that you had?
0: I would have to say it was really at Goldman. So, I, you know, I've been in technology, you know, engineering and more of the ITIL-based incident response, change management, you know, getting to the root cause. But it was really in 2010 when I was in, I was already at Goldman and I moved from infrastructure into technology risk. And that's really where I just kind of dug in and I just, you know, excelled from there.
1: Now, is that when you, the first time or I know you were there a couple of times at Goldman? When did you link up with Phil?
0: in 2006, even though I didn't work in his organization at the time, but we knew him and, and, you know, he was already well-respected.
1: So in that window, you know, one of the times you and I met at a dinner out East and we were talking about career and interviewing and a bunch of other just kind of wild topics over some steak and wine. You had an interesting approach. Maybe it could be a little controversial these days, but I actually kind of liked it on interviewing talk to us a little bit about that and not only what it was, but also why you feel like that could have been an important thing.
0: Well, first of all, Steve, I'm impressed that even over the wine, you remembered all this, which is awesome. So I appreciate that. Yeah. So I had an interesting sort of technique for interviewing uh, people, Uh, not myself, obviously. You know, there's only so much time you have with a candidate. Everybody comes in, their resumes are all polished. And sometimes rehearsed and they're very sort of mechanical and you know that's all great and i always say look if a person sitting in front of me they really cleared some hurdles they're probably really smart they you know hr they, they the recruiting team etc already vetted them um, i want to get to know the person uh, you know when you're working in a company especially a company like goldman you know a lot of type a personalities it, it's very fast paced it's more about can your personality can you last you know, can you endure sort of the, the work that's going to actually be in front of you and work with all these type A personalities, which are great people, but everybody's like firing on all cylinders. And so what I do is what I did is I would call somebody by the wrong name during the interview. And here's why. So let's say, so, all right, you're Steve. So I would come up with a close name, perhaps, I don't know, Saul. And you would come in and I'd say, hey, Saul, have, you know, please have a seat. And I'd love to see your reaction. And it wasn't so much your reaction it was really what you said or didn't say. So sometimes people look at me and are like, oh, they didn't say anything. And I would continue. And if they didn't say anything, I would try to bait them a little bit more. And I would keep saying, Saul, Saul, uh, tell me more, Saul. It was really their response. Steve. So there's a couple of responses. No response is okay. It means you're a little, a little quiet. Maybe you're trying to be respectful and, and I can kind of work around that. A good response would be, oh, I'm sorry, Frank, I think, you know, um, you've been calling me Saul, but I'm actually my name is my name is Steve. But if you want, you can call me Saul. Like if they had that type of personality, to me, that's like a home run. I, I don't really need to like go down your resume. There's going to be other colleagues who uh, will interview you, will, you know, tech you out, deep dive you. You know, I'll start asking things like about what do you do in your personal time and what do you do to relax, that type of thing. But the wrong answer, Steve, the wrong answer is, and again, it says a lot for a person if they can't handle me calling my, by, you know, by the wrong name. If I was to say, hey, Saul, have a seat. And you're like, my name isn't Saul, it's Steve. I'm like, oh, that, that's very interesting. And, and me time in my head, I'm like, you can't work here. If you can't handle me calling you by your wrong name, you know, just innocent. And that's the type of sort of response you give. There's no way you go in the last. And I'm probably doing that person a favor. But, you know, it's funny. <laughs> at HR, once I guess they found out what I did. And they laughed, and I, because they knew me, they was oh that's Frank. That's how he does it. Like he's allowed to do that. But they encouraged other people not to do that. And and at the end of the interview, just to let them know that I wasn't an insane person, you know, especially if we were getting along at some point, I would say, by the way, Steve, I know your name. I was just wanted to see how you reacted, and it was like, oh, they're like, oh wow, that was interesting. So
1: to me, I think that could be a little bit, maybe a lot frustrating to some people. But I think two things: one. They had already been interviewed by many people by the time they got to you, and I think cultural fit or personality fit is an important thing. Yeah. Working in financial services and the pressure cooker that that can be, you wouldn't want to bring someone on that that couldn't take a lot of different types of heat. I, I could see how it could irritate some folks, and how you probably filtered out some folks on that question. I don't have anything that's exactly the same, but a, a long time ago, I kind of accidentally came up with something. I was still in undergrad, just finishing it up, and we were starting a student organization. And the technique, which I've used since, is you meet up with somebody on, this was in campus in this example, and this was a a downtown campus. I was finishing up a couple of credits, and I would walk them. I'd say, hey, let's meet on one side of campus, and then I'd take them on this long and meandering walk. And I wanted to see what they did when they interacted with people. Were they courteous? Did they hold the door for others? How many people knew them? Did they acknowledge, you know, all these things and I'd kind of take them through. And it was a kind of a long and winding, sometimes over 10 minutes, just watching them sort of maneuver through the world. And that gave me a fairly good indicator of their character, or at least I thought it did. It's probably flawed in some way that I'm ignorant to, but it was a a good way to tell, you know, how much attention could they give me and walk and still maybe interact with the rest of the world. Were they polite? A lot of times I'd stop and say, hey, I got to get something to drink. I'm going to get a coffee. How do they treat, you know, the folks at the coffee shop? How do they interact? And that's different, but somewhat similar. And it worked. I'll tell you, it worked. Every time I used that, it worked extremely well when I was trying to evaluate kind of on character and presence and maybe even patience.
0: You know what? I like that a lot. It's interesting. I actually didn't do the whole calling, you know, by the rowing name for every single person. For the ones that you kind of knew were probably going to get the job that they already got like 10 thumbs, thumbs up before they even sat with me. I did the same thing, but I didn't really, it was more of a, you know, I really have nothing else to ask you. I got a lot of feedback already. Let's just go out to the coffee room and just sit down and chat. But that's important because you're right. It's how do they interact? If there's somebody in front of them, do they, you know, or do they allow somebody to get in front of them and say, you know, I'll oh, go ahead, you know, be my guest or, you know, are they polite? You know, how do they interact with other people? That's key. And you're doing them a favor if like, they can't do that there. You, know, you do them a favor by basically not hiring them because they're just going to fail miserably and it's just going to waste everybody's time.
1: And maybe, I mean, I don't know if that's the vehicle for it, but it needs to be something that is reflected upon and if not taught as well. It's one of the reasons why I always liked hiring people that worked any number of time at a you know help desk or solution center or field services, because they have to be patient or they won't last in the job. So if I'm hiring for the security team, it typically makes a lot of sense. If they've got what I you know want to, and they've had that job for a while, I already know they can do the, the service piece. I already know that they have a decent temperament. If they've got a bad temperament, I'll know about it.
0: I agree with that. Actually, I started, with, well, not really fully started, but I did work on a help desk in the beginning of my career and It gives you a broader perspective on things, but it does teach you how to interact. You know, people are calling you because they have a problem. So they're not calling you on a help desk to say, you know, hey, have a great day. And, you know, you have to diffuse that situation. You have to be able to just let them say what they need to say and then get to the part where, okay, let's solve a problem here. You know, it's funny, and we can talk about this later on, but there's a professor in Switzerland. I never met her, but I read one of her postings about the four types of complaints. And I try to put the people I, you know, I deal with on a regular basis into those four markets. I can happen to, to go through them. I just was talking about this, perhaps it was yesterday, the day before with one of my colleagues.
1: Yeah. So let's just go there now. I actually, so when we spoke last time, I actually wrote that down. Yeah, there's f- let's four types of complainers or complaints. Let's rip through that now. So, and maybe, maybe some context before, so before you get into the four, like, why does that even matter? Like, why is a security leader or leader in general or just a mentee or mentor, why does understanding this? Why is it important? And then let's walk through the four.
0: So it, it's important because behind everything is a person. And, you know, I, I've learned and I didn't learn this early in my career. I learned this later on that, you know, people come in with sometimes, you know, a, maybe a, having a bad day, they're having something in their personal life. There's they're off, you know, and, and and I know what I learned is it's never really about me. They might be angry, they might be, you know, sarcastic, snarky, you know, they could be moody. And I, I've learned and, and I'll probably recently that it's it's not me. It's something in their life. And so to listen and to kind of get past that and kind of hear the words, the content of what they're saying, that's where I try to get to. And that's why I think getting to the root cause throughout my career in technology has been uh, important to me. But that's what I think I built a lot of success on. So understanding how to get to the real root cause and not just sort of like fluff it into like sort of a high level bucket.
1: I think one of the best disciplines one can attempt to refine is understanding the difference between a symptom or a cause. And I I learned it mechanically as a kid growing up on a farm, you had to learn the difference between the two and there was no internet and often there was no manual. So what is the difference, you know, just on small engine repair, let's start there, hydraulic systems. And then later on it was web infrastructure and mainframe and all these other things, these systems, right? So I think the human type of that is, you know, you might say, well, these this person's just complaining. They're just a, a bad apple or they're a bad person. Well, no. What are, how do we, how do we try to catalog that? And is that a, a fruitful complaint or just a, a tar pit?
0: I agree. And that's why I wish I could remember her name. I think it was the IMD business school. It was in Switzerland. But that's about all I remember. I don't remember the professor's name, but what she did is, and, and, it's, and again, it's interesting. I actually was telling one of, I actually was telling my team this yesterday on a team call. They were talking about just emotions and stuff like that. And, and I had mentioned, look, they said there's, there's four types and four buckets. And again, I didn't, I didn't create this. I didn't come up with it, but I, I believe it. Um, there's the productive complaining. And to me, that's the best type. The productive complaining is, and some people might say, well, it's not really complaining. It's it's maybe, you know, constructive feedback. But in the context of this professor, she put things into four complaint buckets. So the first one's, you know, productive complaining. That's just somebody who sees a problem and not just complains about it, but might even offer a solution, might even offer an alternative. And that's the best type. And then the second is venting. So venting is more of an emotional, you know, type of complaint. And, and what I've learned there is, they don't want to get to the root cause. They don't want to hear. They don't want to, you to problem solve it. They just want you to listen. And that type of person's okay too, because again, you don't know what type of night that person had, what, what's been going on in their personal life. And that affects, and that affects the, how they're going to work. And again, this all ties into like, you think about phishing and all the, be, you know, human behavioral things that lead to some of these security breaches. And that's why to me, that's how I tie this back. So that's the venting emotional part. And then you get into the last two. You got the chronic complainer. And then this person, this person here, you know, and again, I, I don't know if I, this person would have passed my interview test, but this person is that pessimistic, you know, critical view of their role, their work, their life, the people around them. They just, it's, they're just chronically complaining, very pessimistic, very toxic. You don't even want to be around that type of person, but they exist. And then, of course, the last is that malicious type of complaining person. And we've all worked with somebody like that. And for those starting out the work world, you will come across it, unfortunately. That's the malicious complainer, the person who is like sort of destructive in the way they complain, that they use it to undermine you to gain an advantage. And, you know, we call it backstabbing, right? You know, we grow up, hey, that's a backstabber. But that's the malicious complainer. And learning what buckets these people are in, learning how to navigate around them. um, and, And again, you know, finding a good mentor who can, who can help you navigate these types of orders. That's all important because the, the human aspect in, in information security is the weakest link. And you have to understand that to me before you, because we have tons of smart people that can engineer, you know, anything, build a web server from scratch. Great. But are you thinking about the end user? Like when they go to use it, are there holes in there? Are they going to expose passwords and and that's why I type in and I always think about the human part of it.
1: Well, honestly, the, the other thing to understand is you're going to find all four of that, not only in staff, but also in leadership and executive leadership. There's certainly a lot of malicious complainers or that use complaining as a tool to either try to raise themselves or pull someone else down or to create a diversion. So you're going to see it throughout the sort of the life cycle of your career. Most people don't understand that. And even the chronic complainer that you mentioned, I would argue, even though they might be difficult, they certainly shouldn't be in a customer-facing role, but sometimes they exist in a sort of a back office type role, right? They're in charge of a process or a system. They're complaining all the time, but as long as they get their work done, maybe it's still okay to have them around, right? But as you move up, you're going to encounter quite a bit more of the malicious Machiavellian complainer, for sure. That's for those that are looking to go into leadership and certainly executive leadership you'll see it. Now, a lot of times they'll weed themselves out, but they still exist. You'll get, you know, subtle little complaints and it's a fun one. Look out for it. So I want to shift a little bit to before we shift. We've recorded almost a hundred hours of shows and I don't know that we've ever had that brought up. And I, I did a quick search on it and it's actually seemingly there's several hits on it. I have never studied this, not in my undergrad, graduate any of the training I've had, i would had, I've never, never sort of jumped into that. And I tried to find, to do justice to the authors or the, the researcher's name. I couldn't find her name, but uh, if we find it, we'll put it in the show notes. So I want to jump back to something interesting I thought that, that you did when you were working with Phil, and I think you still may have a relationship there. Uh, you had a relationship with the U.S. Coast Guard.
0: I do. I do. Yeah.
1: I find it interesting. You were, you were helping them do some tabletop work, which I think is, um, I love the... Kind of the format, and I like the relationship, so I want to talk a little bit about this from a couple angles. So, what is it that you're doing, and then I've got some questions.
0: Yeah, so uh, thank you for that. So, uh, yes, yeah, so I'm a, a cybersecurity advisor to the U.S. Coast Guard, uh, captain of the New York New Jersey port. Uh, they call it Sector New York. Her name is Captain Merchant, but I've been through. I guess now uh, she's the third captain that I've worked for with. I don't get paid for it, by the way, right? And. And I guess I'm one of the third admiral, too, because they change every couple of years. And with that, I actually hold a government clearance. But I got that because Phil and another colleague of mine, Byron, great guy, both of them, you know, had their, uh, got obtained their clearance. I think Phil had TS as well. and I think Byron did at one point. And they were going to DC a lot and participating in the Hamilton Vault series of tabletop exercises. And And they asked me to, you know, wanted to be part of that. So I did. And that's how I got my clearance. Phil sponsored it. And then somewhere along the line, the Coast Guard approached Goldman Sachs and they wanted somebody from the financial sector to be part of their cyber advisory committee to help them. And not just them, it's the port partners, oil and gas, you know, shipping. They wanted somebody from the financial sector who didn't have that sort of uh, that government feel to them to uh, help them with tabletop exercises, which they've never done at the time. Uh, and help them raise the bar, and ultimately help them write policy, which can get Congress to you know give them more money, so they can do the things they need to do. So Byron and Phil said, "Would you like to do that?" Of course, I love boats. I actually have, um, if we were on video, if I was home, I have a, a radio-controlled sailboat, which I, I love. But uh, so that's fantastic. That's what I do in my quiet time. What we did is I, I was brought in, and they wanted the port partners to think less about operational technology (OT). And more about information technology, and you know, and it was a it was a paradigm shift for them because think about oil and gas, and if they sh- if all the systems shut down, they simply just and you know their their goal, their job is to move petroleum off of a ship into a tank on land, and if the systems shut down, they just do it manually, and they take a big yardstick and they measure how much gas is in there, and they kind of miss the, you know, all right, well, <laughs> what happens if there's some cyber angle to this? It's, it's a bad actor, and so on and so forth. And so that's why I was involved. And and to this day, now they have somebody who actually facilitates them on a regular basis. Uh, they still conduct at least two a year with a lot of the port partners and there's like 80 participants. It's really cool. And so that's my contribution, I guess, because you know, you think about it, the port of New York, there's, I don't forget, $700 billion a year in, in commerce that comes in and out. And if that was to be attacked, that would hit, that would impact commodities. And that would impact the markets. So, you know, selfishly, I would imagine, you know, Goldman probably had a selfish reason for saying, no, no, you can do that. And they approved it, you know, compliance approved it because it benefits the financial sector, knowing that there's somebody there trying to help to make sure that we don't have a collapse on the commodity side.
1: I think it sounds awesome. I think that it's a lot of times I can tell you, I can't get too specific. It's nothing secret or anything, but I don't want to upset anybody there were some very expensive people that were providing tabletop content and I'll call support for some very important organizations. And I was able to to give those books a look ahead of time and talk to the people running them. And I was largely unimpressed. So it's like, this is not only from a top tier organization, but it's also expensive. And I thought it was Very mediocre because it seemed like shockingly that it was. uh, I learned that there's a buddy of mine who says this all the time, and I've borrowed it extensively, but it was created in a vacuum of experience, meaning that's a very polite way of saying they don't know what the hell they're doing. And so it's important and often overlooked. uh, If you're going to do a tabletop, if you're going to do the exercise, make sure it's relevant. You know, make sure there's variables in there that are likely to occur. And it's amazing how many organizations. Well-meaning organizations just waste their time on things that are not likely to occur or don't really help them prepare and take action and, and help develop the muscle memory, but also putting forth the capabilities to actually respond when they need to.
0: Hundred percent agree with you, Steve. It's really about relevancy, right? It cannot be generic. And unfortunately, I've I've seen I haven't been part of it, but I you know I've seen it where they're just really really generic. It's not relevant, so you're losing the audience right away. But then there's two sides to it, right? The tabletop should be that you should have a technical tabletop, but you should also have one that's on the business side, because those are the folks that are actually going to make the decisions. And sometimes when you combine them, you lose half the audience because the business folks, while they might find it a little bit interesting, you'll lose them as they start to go down this, you know, the the technical conversations. I think, you know, where everybody benefits is you just, you know, try to keep it more on the business side, because ultimately at the end of the day, that's what's going to get impacted. And, you know, you could always do something later with technology, but if you're going to only do one, it should be more business, you know, business facing, business impacting so that people can kind of wrap their heads around it.
1: My only exception to that or the only applied sort of observation about that. And I do think for purposes of planning that having the executives practice their piece is excellent. I do find that when there is a real breach or a major incident, the executives who have largely been able to avoid these topics, now they are dependent on information from the technicians exclusively. So the answers to questions can only come, they don't come from the top down, they invert and go from the bottom up typically. So that creates a interesting uh, and new dynamic. And so they're dependent. The right words to use are going to come from mid-level folks, mid-level technicians typically, what's the status of, and this begins to stress communication chains and also for purposes of external communication, what phrases and words should we share and what should we not share for, you know, if there's federal agencies are involved there's certain information you don't want to share, lawyers, you know, don't want you sharing certain things if you're mid-investigation. So the net of it, and I like your opinion on this, is Never make an introduction in a crisis. That's my thing, right? So even if you're going to run two separate tabletops, it's fine, technical and and executive leadership. But at some point, there's going to have to be a marriage there. So when do you want to have that?
0: So I agree 100% because what would happen is you'd have a lot of chaos. People from the top would be calling just anybody that they know, most likely a senior person who's going to just keep calling. So there'll be sort of this very forked off conversations and Nobody trying to reel it all in, and by doing these tabletops, it does build a muscle memory. Look, at the end of the day, you're going to have to have you know a playbook for it. But nobody really is going to take this 800-page playbook or whatever it is, 80-page playbook. You're not taking a book out. You know, you might take you might take a tear sheet out, which is really what you should have. But when the executives know and the techs know, what's my role? What's my responsibility? And even if you can give them cards. They can put it on their desk, right where. Oh, this is my role during that crisis. I'm going to, my job is to call into this bridge and give X, Y, Z, because that has to get up in a filtered way. You have to get it from a teching talk to more of that business lingo. And that has to be done, you know, very pithy. You're going to lose people if you start going on and on and on. So you have to give you one or two bullets. Here's the latest stats. And then you have to establish the cadence so that management knows, hey, look, at the top of the hour, we're going to get a post. So let's not call them downstairs because every time they call, everybody stops. You know, you got a person trying to fix the thing, but if management's asking that person to jump on a call, now the person can't fix it. And I've seen that happen. And really what helps out is doing these tabletop exercises on both sides and letting the business know, let technology know what your role is and what the expectation is, especially on the communication table part.
1: Yeah. I've seen more companies typically, even, even if they don't know what they're doing, they'll figure the technical stuff out because they'll usually bring outside help. In, But I've seen the most failures on the external communication piece where they'll botch it, they'll have to revise or they're just not managing the message well. And that's a direct failure or maybe not failure, but it's a weakness of that familiarity. You know, they'll bring in executive comms people, they'll have their crisis management team. But as it relates to cybersecurity, they somehow miss the mark. I see it often. It's getting better and people pay less attention to it, but it just, and funny enough, now it's fallen in, speaking of muscle memory, you read a breach notification letter in print, and it's almost all the same these days. I mean, it's almost, you can almost break it out in chapter, like, oh, here we go. Like, I mean, th- I find that interesting.
0: Yeah, and you know what, for better or worse, actually, I think it is better because the more consistent, your eyes go to, you know, a sort of a, a pattern. And so that's why even your communications need to be on these sort of templates, because if you start sending you know, communications out that look inconsistent, your people aren't just going to read them. They'll forget them. It it becomes very, very confusing. And so you got to say what you need to say right up front. And anything else after it is just part of a template. It's all, if if anyone wants to take time to read it, they can. But people just want to know what is the latest status? What can I tell clients externally? What are we telling our people internally? And those, you know, two communication threads, you have to assume that you're sending something internal it'll make its way outside right information wants to be free so you know it's, it's the second you it, it leaves your sent folder you just have to assume that hey you know what we have to be careful because this this might make its way outside so what 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 is our message
1: so one of my favorite topics to ask guests is is there's variants of mentorship questions. One of them is advice to younger self. Another one is worst advice and best advice. We chatted a little bit, and this can sometimes get a little dicey, but I love reviewing bad advice because there's even some well-meaning, but just overly shitty advice that, that people get from managers or maybe maybe a mentor or maybe their parents, who knows, or maybe some members of their family, right? That are like, hey, you should do this, you know? Frank, what's, what's some of the worst, looking back on your career, what's some of the worst advice you've received?
0: So I guess one thing comes to mind, I, I try to learn from my mistakes. so I don't normally focus on the worst of anything. You know, if it happens, it happens, and then I try to just keep it as a positive. So I, I don't think I have too many examples, but I, I do have one, which technically wasn't even advice at all, but it stuck with me because it actually caused me to, you know, walk very gingerly for many, many years after that. What it was was, I was working at Prudential Securities at the time, and I won't, I won't talk about names. I won't mention names, but, uh, but my job was more of a QA engineer, and there was a new IBM platform that was coming out for like the new brokers and the traders and stuff like that. And my job was to, you know, QA the, the platform in production, and escalate the findings. And it was a day one release, and we were in like the main office, the showcase office. It was down on Wall Street, and I was asked to to come there because all the executives were there, my manager was there, etc. and they wanted me to kind of walk around as the traders and the brokers were booting up the new system, working. And, and I was like sort of a, I guess you could say a help desk person, but, uh, you know, it was solved the problems that, you know, at people's desks. The top executive there, uh, he, he was a really good guy. He was the CIO. He was well-known across Wall Street at the time. He saw me. He saw me walking around fixing things and talking to the traders. And stuff. So he asked me how things were going. And I said, you know, look, uh, for the most part, great. Uh, he asked if there were any issues. And I said, you know, just the small, you know, small ones here and there, but they'd be in your dress. And my boss, and I won't mention his name, my manager at the time, um, he said, uh, let's go have a coffee. So I'm thinking, wow, this is great. <laughs> you know, it's like, you know, my, my manager's taking me off of coffee. This is a whole new thing for me. I'm walking outside during my workday. We're having coffee with the manager. We got outside. And he reamed me for not telling the CIO that just everything was great. And I said to him, and I said, you know, I'm trying not to say his name. I said, but you didn't. You didn't coach me on that. You told me that my job was to find the problems and and, and fix them. You didn't say, you know, I couldn't, uh, not to say, you know, I mean, I, I think I might have been smart enough to know that I wasn't going to say things were shitty. But, you know, he didn't t- he didn't coach me on that. So there was no advice there. So to me, the lesson there was to be organizationally aware. Know, know who the most senior person is in the room and know the politics. And if you're not sure, because again, that's not an easy thing, but if you're not sure, just say things are good. There's no issues, but keep notes and then let your manager know. And, you know, like if I could rewind the clock, I would have done that. It might have, you know, I don't know if that would have, I say to myself, things happen for a reason. So I'm here today because of all the failures and all the positive things that happened in my life and my career. So I don't know if I would have, I don't want to say I I would change that because I don't know if that would change my trajectory. But it did change my trajectory back then. It actually was the first thing for me saying, I, I can't work here no more. So that was kind of the, the, the pivotal thing for me.
1: You know, I struggle with this. I mean, I, I think it's, it's the whole truth to power thing. And that is a, a very quick litmus test for me when I'm evaluating an organization. What is the, the mechanism to deliver truth to power? And now, you have to manage the message. There's a way, and uh, there's an appropriate way to deliver certain types of news. But you were asked a direct question, and learning how to be diplomatic is important. You know, I've I've had those questions from SLT, ELT, and board members asking these kinds of things in my past. You know, there's not only what you say, but also your delivery. So how confident are you in that? But I'm I'm really more irritated at that manager. You know, it may have been a teachable moment, certainly, but. Yeah, that, that to me, I, I have personally have issues with, but I, I think that he probably could have taught you the lesson a little differently, probably could have actually got you that coffee.
0: Yeah. It, and it's so funny. It was I guess it was traumatic. I don't even remember getting the coffee. But um, but I do remember, actually, now that now that you again, like I said, I try to focus on more of the positive things in my career and not repeat mistakes. But I do remember one other thing that came out of that. He actually told me that you can be rest assured, Frank, that, you know, because I, w- I did my job very well. And so, you know, he said, you, you know, you can, you rest assured that you're going to, uh, you can have this job for the rest of your career. And I thought that was a positive thing. Again, I was naive, I was younger, but then I I, I was on the ferry going home and the St. Island Ferry. And, and I remember thinking,
1: wait a second here,
0: yeah. that means that I'll never get promoted. And that was it. And I was like, ding, 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 ding. You know, so I was like, oh, that's what he meant. And that's really, you know, that, like I said, that was the pivotal moment where I said, well, I can't, I can't work here so this message, so you're dealing with
1: the CIO at this point, or at least the message initially was to him or her, whoever this was, but it's, it's, to me, there's a bigger element there that goes to the CISO level that goes to kind of the fabric of each company. And you and I talked about this is sort of what's the red, yellow, green philosophy right to the board, to the, to the leadership. So what do they want to know? And what I'll say is before we get in, I want your feedback on this, but this often happens to security teams where they create, uh, let's say, ELT materials that are going to get reported on, maybe board, but less likely, probably a subcommittee. But you have this information and, and the security team proudly puts together 10 slides on stuff that they're doing, right? And the message gets edited as it goes up, right? So 10 slides becomes two bullets, three bullets, maybe. And that might end up in an appendix and it may get cleaned up or modified. I see it happen all the time and less so these days, but your little story that you still remember very clearly is exactly that, but moved up, moved up the chain. So let's talk about that. I mean, what, what does that philosophy tell you as someone who's been in the game for a while? What What are the different philosophies and how do you feel about that to the to the listener who's maybe struggling with a big kid version of this?
0: Yeah. So it's interesting. So, you know, I'm at a small firm right now. And the the great thing is we're very transparent with the board and we have to be. Uh, And fortunately, we do have a lot of greens, right, which is what you should. And we have no reds, which is also very good. But I think about more of the larger firms and and colleagues and former colleagues of mine and and, friends of mine that are uh, larger firms and not just the financial companies as well. And they do say the messages get, you know, their, their message gets watered down. And what I think it, it really is, Steve, is I think the way you approach it in your metrics report. And I think oftentimes there's too much data and then oftentimes it's too techie. And what you really didn't do was you didn't tie the business impact or the business relationship to this technology issue, to this information security issue. And I think that's where boards need to focus on today. And I think that's where teams, especially in information technology, need to focus on, it's, it's how do you take what you see as an issue, and you might think, you know, hey, this is really bad, but now apply the business side to it, and maybe it isn't as bad, and maybe it's just, you know, maybe it is an amber on a report, you know, it's not a red, but it's an amber with an explanation, and it's an amber with, here's the approach we're going to take, and here's how long it's going to take before it turns green. Because you need to be, I think, you know, teams need to be transparent with the boards today. I think boards are getting a lot more savvy than they used to be, especially in the cyberspace. And, you know, you're not doing yourself any justice by giving them a green report all the time, uh, because really you can't be green all the time. And then what's going to happen is the first time you have a breach or the first time you have a a major incident, they're going to look back and say, you told me everything was green. And now you've kind of lost a little bit of your own, you know, reputation within the firm. And so it doesn't benefit anybody, but I think that's the key, Steve. I think the key is that teams need to understand how to translate what they see on the technology side into what does this mean on the business side. And it's not, that's not easy to do, but the thing is you don't have to do it by yourself. Simply talk talk to a salesperson, talk to somebody on the front line, talk to a trader, ask them and, you know, ask somebody in the executive committee. Say, look, we're seeing this and, and, you know, this is what could happen. How would that impact you? They might say, oh, we don't care about that. That's like whatever, whatever. Oh, well, then I'm not going to say it's red. I don't need to. You know, you, I'll give it an amber with a note. But I think that's where it is. And it comes down to good old fashioned communication.
1: So there's a handful of topics I want to cover yet before we conclude uh, our chat. But one of the more interesting things when I was asking, so kind of the inverse of best advice. One of the themes you mentioned going back to a job you had working with somebody uh, from an engineer from Bell Labs and kind of the phrase I put on it is what's in a word? Tell us that little vignette of a story and kind of the lesson with that. What's what's in a word?
0: And again, super impressed that you remember this over a glass of wine and a steak. I don't even remember you writing this down, which is
1: I take uh, I take notes. I take notes. I'm not smart enough to remember anything, Frank.
0: So I call it what's in a word. And, you know, when I was at the insurance side of Marshall McLennan companies, I worked for a really smart guy. His name was Tony. He was a uh, Antonio, actually, but he was a, a Bell Labs engineer. And if you know anything about Bell Labs, uh, it's a little bit before my time, but those were true engineers. And so when I worked for him, everything he did, everything he said, no matter what it was, process, oh, that process is broke or needs to change. Let's re-engineer. Oh, this is whatever. Let's re-engineer. So everything was re-engineered. So that was normal to me. So when I returned to Goldman in 2006, the bosses, but the head of infrastructure, she said to me, "I need you to come in, and I need a single incident, global incident management and change management process that everybody adopts. We have like 13 bespoke of them, you know, bespoke processes. She was, they're all crap. They're they're crap. Throw them out. That was her exact words. But I didn't convey that to people. I just knew that that's what she wanted. That was my direction. That was it. And one of the, I, you know, I had to establish who are my key, the key people. And one of them was a gentleman that I worked with. I won't pick up his name. He's a good guy. though. And, you know, I'm, I'm learning, okay, who's who. And I sent out a broadcast after I got some data collection. And it basically just said, you know, I introduced myself and said, look, I'm going to re-engineer the current change in incident management processes uh, into one standard, you know, globally. And I pissed him off that so bad that he sent a note to my manager, who the hell is this guy I think he is? Blah, blah, blah. I'm, I, I'm never gonna help him. And my all my boss said was, you need to fix this. And I'm like, fix what? What do I what I do? And so again, I'm trying to like long story short, the same thing. But I, I tried to go on this guy's calendar. He would he you know he would accept it and then decline last minute. He I went to his office, he would never let me in. It took me weeks. And finally I just stood in his office and I said to him, Look, I need to talk to you because so I was like, I can't move forward. And I got in there and I'm like what is it that you, you clearly pissed at me? What is it that I said or I did? And he, he took a couple of deep puffs and you know, deep breaths. And he said, he goes, that broadcast you sent? I said, yeah. He goes, you re-engineer? I said, yeah. He said, I'm the one who put a lot of these like, you know, different incident and change programs in globally already. Yes, we have a lot of them, but I did. it. I'm like, good. Okay. I want to work with you. He's like, so basically the re-engineer means that the, it, everything sucks. You're going to like throw it out. I said, that's not what I meant. And I said, he said, well, that's what re-engineer means. I said, I don't, I don't I don't, think so. And I said, well, what word would be better? And he said, enhance. And I said, oh, okay. I said, so enhance, he goes, enhance means that you're going to take what's there and build upon it and make it better. Re-engineer means you're throwing it all out and you're redoing the whole thing. And I said, you know what? For me, it didn't matter back then, Steve. The next broadcast I got, I basically didn't apologize for the previous one. I just changed, re-engineered or enhanced. I even put his name in there and I said, we're going to build upon, you know, and I basically gave him, I I built a molehill into a mountain, gave him a ton of credit, even though what he had was, even though what he had was crap, you know, it's, it's, I needed him to be an advocate. I needed him to be, you know, collaborate with me and buy in. So I figured, what is it? It doesn't cost me anything to do that. Let me do that. Even though I knew I was going to throw all this stuff out. And he became such an advocate of our program because I, I give him credit all the time. I'm like, yeah, we're doing this. I'm like, well, that's how, not how it was. I'm like, yeah, but I'm just enhancing what was there. In my head, I'm like, no, I'm re-engineering. I'm throwing the shit out. And I tell that to people today. I'm like, be careful on the words that you use. And especially if you're new in a firm and your job is to fix things or you find something, you know, people might not use the word re-engineer today, but don't say you're going to fix it. Don't say you're going, you know, just use the word enhance. You'll gain a lot more, you know, buy-in from people and collaboration than you would have if you use any other word.
1: Yeah, no, I think that's a good a good point. So for the listener, maybe default to enhance if you're unsure, right? No, that's I like that story a lot, and I've, I've slammed into many walls myself on similar situations and been unaware that I had hit a wall. That's the, the great part of being dumb. Sometimes you're tough enough not to feel the wall that you just smashed in, but you're not smart enough to realize that you hit it. So one of the last things I want to cover, and this is, this is actually my last point before I have our final question, is you as a, as a youth, you started your life out. We talk about origin stories here and how did you get your start? And we talked about Matthew Broderick and all this, but uh, even well before that, your origin story, you started things out uh, in an orphanage. And that's, that uh, affects, certainly affected you, but uh, still acts as sort of the, the North star for you today. Uh, talk to us a bit about that.
0: Thank you for bringing that up. Yeah. And, and so I did start life out in an orphanage, uh, it was in Brooklyn. And uh, after being in an orphanage as an orphan, obviously, and not elf like in the movie, but you know, because he was an orphan, I went to foster care and I was only in there a short amount of time, but then I was adopted into a loving family, which I've, you know, my whole life. and my mother's still alive. And, you know, so I've never let that own me. And I've always in my heart because I I was, you know, raised and brought into a very loving, caring family. And my father worked very hard. So I had, a you know, I never really had to want for anything. And I have an adopted sister as well. And so, you know, I always wanted to give back. So when I was at Goldman, we said, well, what could we do? And you know, what could I do? And we do work, I do work with uh, a year up, which is a, a nonprofit that takes inner city kids and gives them an opportunity to, to get into sort of the you know the corporate world and break that poverty cycle. And I love working there. But then when I started that, I realized after talking to them that some of them were, were, were in foster care. So we started working with Casey Foster Care, which is the largest national foster care in the U.S. And when I heard the stat that there were over 30,000 kids aging out, aging out means you hit 21, aging out of the foster care system, and only 6% actually go to college well, nobody knows what happens to them after them. You can almost guess. But, you know, that's a horrible stat. So I said, well, I want to do something to, to fix it. And so Goldman put a cohort together and, and you know, we were mentoring, I call them kids, but youths aging out of the system that want to go to college. You know, they just needed somebody to help mentor them. They have plenty of help that, that people get paid for, but we're not getting paid for it. And I think that mattered to them. And what happened was, and I'll, I'll close on this, Casey Foster Care came to Goldman and said, look, uh, and it was another colleague of mine, Alexis. That, so they said, uh, you think both you and Frank, you and Alexis can come to Washington, D.C. and testify before Congress on the benefits of private sector firms working with nonprofits such as Casey? And, you know, we went to Goldman and we said, normally we wouldn't be allowed to do that. And then we said, can we go and do that? And they've absolutely. I mean, you think about it, the financial crisis, Lloyd was testifying before Congress and that wasn't a good thing. So they said, yeah, absolutely, go ahead, go ahead. And, and so that was a very, very humbling moment in my life, very crowning moment. I mean, the whole point of that was so that, again, Congress would uh, allocate money to f- you know firms like Casey because they can't do it on their own. They're, they're a nonprofit. And of course, we don't get paid for to do that at Coleman. That was just what we did because that's the culture there. They try to teach you to give back, so.
1: I think what kicked that off, so thank you for sharing. What clued me in is I believe when we met, you on your lapel had a, I, th- I could be wrong, but I think it was a, a foster care pin, if I remember correctly—and I had never seen it before. So that—that's actually what sparked this point of the conversation. So credits to you and all those that are caring for those kids. What an uphill climb, and then to know that that six percent statistic is um, not a good way to end up, right? That needs to be a, a larger number, and—and and be even beyond that, uh, as, as you mentioned sometimes more than college is just someone to talk to imagine you you may not have somebody to explain the nuances of all the things it takes to that we take for granted right that's to move your life forward so uh, the mentorship and the support greatly needed and uh, thank you for sharing that thank you for doing it well frank we've covered a lot and we're about at time but i have one more question for you which every listener will know what i'm going to ask pursuant to the name of our show the new ciso frank what does being a new ciso mean to you
0: a couple of things uh, on the on the non human part <laughs> you know like to say cuz i said it, there's a big focus on being human what it means to me is being able to translate the technology aspect of my job to those who are non technical that to me is is what really the new ciso is it's it's focusing less on The engineering aspects of it and focusing more on the risk aspects, the business side. What does this mean to a business person? And I think that's where you'll see and should see a lot of CISOs moving towards more on the, uh, you know, defining and explaining risk. So I think that plus, I think, you know, people need to really, it's okay. So, you know, the saying, I think it was from Voltaire, you know, perfect is the enemy of good. And I think people need to uh, embrace that a little bit more. I think. Uh, too many people, in, in, you know, in, in, in my field here aim for perfection. And, you know, and they have to realize that it's okay to fail, right? Albert Einstein says, like, failure is a success in progress. And if you think about the space race, you know, how many launches failed before we actually were able to put men on there and send them to the moon, right? So, you know, and I think that's important. So I, I think in the context of your podcast, The New CISO, I think we need to focus on understanding, you know, how technology translates to the business side. But I also think you need to look at the human side. And I think, you know, too often people focus on, we're not robots and your manager shouldn't be a robot. And unfortunately, sometimes some of us work for managers who are just robots. And I think you need to understand the human aspect to the work environment because around that you could put these security guardrails. Like you think about phishing is, 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 is a prime example, you know, is humans are going to make mistakes. Okay. Okay. Try to understand why they make why they're making those mistakes. And it comes down to education and awareness. So I think there needs to be more focus on that. And let technology do its thing. Let you have engineers, you have smart people working for you. Let them worry about securing your infrastructure. Focus on the human part of it.
1: Perfect. Frank, thank you so much for your time today.
0: Steve, I appreciate it. Thank you. Have a good day.
1: That is it for this episode of the New CISO. Thank you for listening. Check out more episodes on xbeam.com forward slash podcast. Remember to rate, review, and subscribe to get brand new episodes first.